Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Ido Vokin, Tbilisi. I'm Emily Campion in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 14th of August. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thanks for joining us. Emily, how is D.C.? I am not going to lie to our good listeners. D.C. has been better. The president this week came out and said that he was trying to prevent the post office from being funded so that we couldn't have universal mail-in voting during a pandemic. How's Tbilisi? Tbilisi is good. There is a new poll out, which is quite rare because no one ever bothers polling in Georgia that shows that the ruling Georgian Dream Party is on doors for a landslide election win because of its handling of the coronavirus pandemic. Oh, well, that's some good news for uh, in in Georgian politics, or at least news in Georgian politics. Yeah. (laughs) Before we introduce our guest, and Ido, thank you for coming back as as co-host this week. Jeremy should be back next week. But before we introduce our guest... Ido, what has been the moment this week that you think will go down in history? I know I talk about it a lot on this podcast, but for me, it's once again going to be the election in Belarus, which uh, was completely fraudulent, saw Alexander Lukashenko returned with 80% of the vote, absolutely made up numbers, but there have been massive protests against his rule, and it really seems like we've come to a turning point. As I wrote at the time, his legitimacy has been permanently damaged, and this week we've seen the beginnings of a general strike with huge numbers of workers walking out of factories. And a lot of people seem to agree that it will be very, very difficult to row back from this. And Emily, what's yours? Well, as regular or even semi-regular listeners of this podcast know, we have been looking forward to Joe Biden's announcement of his running mate. And it's it's finally been made. He has selected Kamala Harris. I will remember this for for two reasons, not only because we've been waiting for it for so long, but this is a a historic announcement. She is only the fourth woman in American history to ever be on a major party's ticket. She's the first black woman and first Asian American person to be so. You know, there there are particularly people of color or communities of color and people who work in the criminal justice space are already saying, yes, this is historical, but we want to hold her accountable given her record as a prosecutor and as a district attorney and as attorney general of California, as they should, right? We're, we're meant to hold our public officials to account. But it's sort of regardless of what your politics are, I think you can you can note that this is a major moment in American history. The other reason that I will remember this is that there are some, including the president, who met this moment in American history by questioning Kamala Harris's eligibility and saying that because she is the child of an Indian and Jamaican immigrant who was born in the United States, that perhaps she is not eligible to be vice president. This is birtherism 2.0. It's not true. It's completely racist. And the fact that it took 
less than 48 hours for this to come into our political discourse, I personally will remember when I look back on this time. On that note, on to our guest. We are so excited this week because we are joined by Sarah Churchwell. She is a professor of American literature and public understanding of the humanities at the University of London and is also the author of a forthcoming New Statesman piece called All American Fascism. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So I don't want to get too much into the specifics of the piece because it's not out yet and people will have to read it for themselves on publication. But, you know, here in the States, there there has been a bit of a debate about whether you can use the word fascism to describe what's happening now, right? The, the latest iteration of this debate came with the protests in Portland and federal agents reportedly throwing protesters into vans. And there were some people who said, how could you not say this is fascism? And some people who say, you know, that's that's not the right term. So my question for you is whether you think that we can refer to what's happening now in the United States as fascism, or if that's the wrong question. Hmm. It's certainly the right question because it's such an important one and because it's so live, as you say, and because it's such a difficult one to answer in one sense. So I absolutely think it's the right question. And I think there are two different ways to answer it. One is to discuss it in terms of its accuracy, historically, the ways in which what the Trump administration is doing aligns with the practices of historically fascist movements, which of course are not only the German Nazi movement, which people tend to fall back on as if it was the only one, but let's remember that fascism was named and invented by Mussolini. And that of course, there was also a fascist regime Spain. And then we can talk about other fascist regimes in the past as well, Peron in Argentina and others. So on the one hand, we can ask ourselves whether what the Trump administration is doing aligns recognizably with those practices. But there's another way to ask the question or to frame the question, which is about whether calling them a fascist or calling this regime fascist will be politically effective. Will it, mm-hmm. will it get the job done? And it seems to me that we might have different answers to those questions. So for me, is it an accurate description of what they're doing? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And not just because it's a, it's authoritarian. A lot of people want to make that distinction. What differentiates fascism from authoritarianism is the way that it uses domestic divisive politics, what many people describe as the politics of us and them, right? Jason Stanley, uh, for example, at Yale has, has written and talked about this a lot, that are based on racial or ethnic divides and that they use those divisions in order to claim what the, what the Germans called a Herrenvoke, right? That, that some citizens are more real than others and that some citizens should have rights and other citizens are denied those rights. And of course, so what you do is you're setting up denying their full citizenship mm-hmm. and eventually you're denying their humanity. It's a slippery slope. And I was really glad that you opened with the fact that they went right for birtherism with Kamala because it's a perfect example. It's the first thing they do is try to deny her citizenship mm-hmm. to say that, that she's not a real American. She's not a true American. That's the absolutely, you know, classic fascist trope. And there are other, I mean, fascism is really difficult to define, which is part of the reason why this question is a hard one to answer. And historians and theorists of fascism don't agree about how to define it. There's no litmus test and there's no straightforward answer. But another way to, to answer it, and then I'll stop with this very long answer, but it is complicated, is that the defenses that have been offered over the last three years, arguments against seeing the Trump regime as a fascist one, are falling away. So 
what did they say at the beginning? They said, well, this isn't fascism because we don't have armies in the streets. Wait until we've actually got, you know, armed troops in the streets and then right. we can call it fascism. Well, guess what? You know, look at Portland. We've got it. So every time they say, well, he hasn't done this and therefore it's not fascist, he goes off and does that. And it is fascist. Now, as I say, whether that actually calling him fascist is going to help us remove him is a different question in my mind. And that's a purely political question. And we may, as I say, have a different answer to that. It may not be a successful strategy. Speaking of strategies, I saw a tweet from you. Trump had tweeted out a digital cover that showed Trump 2028, Trump 2032, Trump 2036. And you wrote, oh, look, it's more jokes, quote unquote, about a Trump monarchy. I thought it was a smart point because they're so often in this administration, he'll say something and then say, well, I was just joking or, oh, you you know, during the campaign, it was you have to tra- take Trump seriously, but not literally. And then time would go by and you would say, well, wait a minute, that, that joke was something that now came to fruition. What role does this kind of faux humor? I'm not even really sure what to describe it, but this this claim that I was just joking when actually it's something that you meant in perfect seriousness. What role does that play in fascism? Well, it's all part of the undermining of any sense of fidelity to truth, right? It's all part of the big lie and it's all part of propaganda. So of course, the big lies, as I'm sure all of your listeners know, was at the heart of the Nazi propaganda machine. It's something that Hitler elaborates in Mein Kampf. And the idea that if you want to actually undermine people's relationship to political truth and indeed to reality, and you want reality to be what the fascist state and the cult of the leader declares it to be, that actually people will push back against a small lie, but the outrageousness of a big lie, the audacity of it will actually disarm them. They won't actually have a comeback. And so you rely on the big lie to absolutely undermine the fabric, the political fabric that relies on certain shared collective understandings of reality, of political reality, but also more specifically of political norms, of in our case of democratic norms, of just that this isn't how we do things. And broadly, I would characterize it as a question of good faith versus bad faith. The Trump administration deals purely in bad faith. Trump is bad faith from start to finish. And this is what appears to be a relatively benign or trivial example. But as we're saying, it's it's not non-trivial at all. It's actually quite significant. It's symptomatic of an entire way of behaving, which is all about bad faith and is a version of a lie because the lie is that he's just joking. He isn't joking. I can't remember now off the top of my head whether it was actually about the when he said injecting with Lysol or whether it was the um, hydrochloroquine, but in one of the crazy things that he was saying about cures for coronavirus, he was asked this summer if he was just joking, and he said, I never joke. And yet, as you say, he has routinely defended his more outrageous statements by saying that he was joking. I actually think when he said, I never joke, it's one of the few times he's ever told the truth. He doesn't joke. These are trial balloons. He's seeing what he can get away with. And his politics, I've said this on Twitter before as well, is his politics is throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. That's how he does it. That's how he's done it from the start. That's why he relies on live audiences so that he could figure out what's sticking and what's working with his base. And the fake joke is part of that approach, is that he'll throw it out there and see if he can get away with it. And then if he can't get away with it, he'll just claim it was just a joke. There's a really interesting section of the piece. Without ruining it too much, you talk about how clownish Mussolini and Hitler 
were seen and sort of I was wondering if you could talk about how they were perceived at the time and you talk about in the piece how Charlie Chaplin mocked Hitler in The Great Dictator and of course that was released in 1940 and obviously at that point the US still wasn't in the war Hitler you know could still be mocked because nowadays we see Hitler as the most evil leader you can imagine the most evil person you can imagine but at the time he was very much up for mockery and I think Mm. a lot of people abroad see Trump as a clown and maybe that leads them to take them less seriously than they should. Yeah, that's absolutely my view. And the, I mean, I would, I would point out, yeah, not just Hitler, but also Mussolini, as you said. I mean, anybody who remembers Dr. Strangelove will realize that George C. Scott is imitating Mussolini. He's actually doing an absolutely brilliant uh, spoof of Mussolini in what is a satire, right? In a, in a comedy, the sense that they were always, they were such exaggerated figures. They were so emotional and they were so uncontrolled and they seemed so irrational. And what they were saying was so extreme and so unheard of that people just responded with absurdity and they shrugged it off and they said, this is just ridiculous. Serious people won't fall for this. So, you know, you don't need to pay them any attention. And they also said, particularly in the case of Hitler, it was just politics. He didn't really mean the anti-Semitism. He was just playing politics and he was using anti-Semitism to get elected. And then once he was elected, what did they think he would do? They thought he would just become a normal politician and that he didn't really mean it. And of course, you see exactly the same rhetoric around Trump's campaign and election in 2016, the amount of investment in believing, he, and which is still absolutely endemic in the media coverage of Trump, this, this apparent need to normalize him and to think that he can't really mean it. And all of that is part of this of this package of, and again, this is something I, I do go into in the piece, and it's it's funny to be talking about a piece before it's published, so we're kind of trying to tiptoe around things, but that it, it has to do with the grandiosity of fascism, right? Fascism is about making these really big, grand appeals to the, the ideal of the leader and the cultish power of the leader and to the ideal of the perfect group, the heron Vogue that you're saying are the, the real Germans or the real Americans. And the rest of them are somehow, you know, unreal. I mean, I come from Chicago and, and you know, we've been dealing with that rhetoric since at least Sarah Palin. And obviously it goes back further than that. I mean, I've written in other places about how far back that language goes. It really goes back to Jackson and Jefferson. But the idea that there are some Americans who are more real than others. And I remember when Sarah Palin kept talking about, you know, real Americans. And I'd be like, so what are the people from Chicago? I mean, what are, are we unreal Americans? And at first you think that you're making something that is a slightly ironical rhetorical pushback, a debate, or even maybe a little bit of a joke, but then you realize it's actually really serious, that all of it is about this attempt to create a kind of theater of power. And if you're outside of the ring, you don't see it as powerful, and then it looks absurd, right? The performance of like, you know, worldwide wrestling, for example, right? So for people who are caught up in it, it's a performance that they love, they know it's faked, but they still really enjoy it, and they enjoy the power dynamics of it, and they find it successful. And then for people who are standing outside of that, or you watch it out of context, and it just seems absurd, it seems so over the top, but that's the point, The people are enjoying the exaggerated, excessive, hyperbolic aspects of it. And that's why they they seem so clownish. But what I'm getting at in the piece is that we mustn't let the clownishness tempt us into underestimating them, because that's exactly what happened with Hitler, in particular. You're completely right to observe that some of this did not, a lot of this did not start 
with Trump, that this language about real Americans, fake Americans, or, or the McCain campaign's famous, well, there's real Virginia and then fake Northern Virginia. Yeah. You know, this didn't start in, in 2015 or 16 or whenever. But are there historical precedents that you look at in the United States? Because we've been talking about Hitler and Mussolini and Perón. Is there precedent for this sort of fascism in the United States? Or in that regard, are we in uncharted waters? I absolutely think there's precedent for it. And this is something I've been writing about a great deal lately. Some of it comes into this essay that I've done for you, but I've also been writing about it in other places. The question is whether we look at the extremist right-wing movements in America that sprang up there after the Civil War in the first instance, and mm -hmm. then again in the interwar period in the 1920s and 1930s, which are most famously the Klan. So we've got the first Ku Klux Klan after the Civil War, and then the second Klan, which rises again in 1915 and, and takes uh, a lot of power in the 1920s, which I don't know, Emily, if you had the same experience that I had, but this was not something that used to be taught in the schools in America. We're very bad about telling the truth about, about our own white supremacist history, and I think Absolutely. that's just starting to change. But you don't start studying this stuff until you study history at university, if then, or if you study civil rights. So you have to actually choose to learn about this, and it's not something that we insist that that all kids learn. And so the question is, and again, this is something that historians of fascism argue about and theorists of fascism argue about, is should we see those groups as fascist? Are they properly described as fascist? And one of those historians is called Robert Paxton, who is himself an American, but an expert on European fascism. And he wrote some years ago, that the first Klan, which sprang up in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War in 1866 and only lasted for about five years. But he points out that there's a strong claim to, to think about that as a fascist movement. And he said this long before Trump, right? I mean, this was 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And he pointed out that, you know, it's a, it's a group that denies the legitimacy of the current government. So it doesn't just want to oppose the current government. It denies them existential authority, right? It rejects their right to exist because they don't, conform to the Klan's own belief system. They define their belief system and their value system around us and them, around people having to be like them. And if they aren't like them, then again, they reject their right to exist. So this is all very existential. Then he points out you know, that they had uniforms, in this case, the pointy hood and the robe, but it is a uniform. Their love of ritual, their love of the occult, obviously the, the paramilitary violence, but the, also that there are kind of paralegal and parapolitical sets that sets themselves up as a separate political entity that, again, is about denying the legitimacy of the democratic system, of the existing system. And when you think about the Klan in those terms, it sounds pretty fascist, actually. Um, and I think it's a really strong argument. We don't have to come down on one side or the other definitively to say that the Klan was or wasn't or should or shouldn't be. But one of the things that I've been doing is chronicling the degree to which the people who lived through the Klan and through the rise of European fascism in the same moment, absolutely thought that the Klan was fascist. And I found hundreds of examples in the 1920s of American commentators saying, if you want to understand this new thing, the Klan, look to Italy because it's what Mussolini is doing in Italy. The Klan is fascist. They said it over and over and over again. So certainly they viewed them as similar. And the other thing to remember is that the degree to which historians have now demonstrated very conclusively the degree to which Hitler based the Nuremberg race laws on American racial classification laws, on the mm -hmm. one drop rule and on Jim Crow laws, he did that in order to legitimize his race 
classifications. And so he looked to a precedent and America gave him that precedent. And also he was drawing on uh, Henry Ford's circulation of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in the series that was called The International Jew, which he circulated throughout America in the 1920s, and he made it go mainstream. And Hitler and Ford were influencing each other. Their conspiratorial anti-Semitism was mutual, and they shared the same text, and they learned from each other. And so the degree to which these two sets of, of ideas in these groups were existing at the same time, mutually supporting each other to a great extent, not completely, but um, to a great extent. And in one of the other pieces I've written, you know, I talked about the fact that, that there was even a, a Nazi consul general in California who tried to purchase the Klan. And he saw it as the beginning of a putsch in the United States. So they definitely saw the affinities. And I think that we need to take that really seriously. When the Klan started to decline in the late 1920s, it started to fall apart because of, guess what, financial corruption scandals and sex scandals. Funny how the extreme right wing always falls on the same hurdles. They started to collapse in the late 1920s. And the same members then, many of them, many of those leaders rebranded themselves as American fascists. They were self-described as American fascists. They insisted that the Nazis had learned everything from the Klan, and they started a bunch of colored shirt movements. So, you know, in America, we had white shirts and khaki shirts and gray shirts and silver shirts and indeed brown shirts with Father Coughlin. So for me, it's, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, I mean, they're literally in colored shirts and calling themselves fascist. And we're saying America doesn't have a fascist history. You know, so there absolutely is a history to this. And but that's not to say that what the Trump administration is doing is identical to interwar European fascism. Of course, it isn't. But for me, the problem is in thinking that it has to be fully metastasized in our government before we will call it fascism, because then we can only identify it once it's too late. We have to call it for what it is. It is absolutely incipient fascism. That's what he's trying to do. And we need to recognize that, you know, this is, call it neo-fascism, if you like, or fascism 2.0, like you said about birtherism 2.0. This is what they're doing. They're rebooting it, but it's the same old thing. Just to close, I'd, I'd like to sort of get a bit meta and ask you what it's like writing about contemporary politics using the language of fascism and, and calling things fascism. I think basically when you talk about fascism in 99.9% of people's minds, you bring up two particular people and you bring up two particular regimes and like really you only bring up one, which is Hitler's Germany. Like even people who are broadly sympathetic to your particular political views will probably say, well, you know, I don't like Trump, but um, it's still not Nazi Germany. And I'd like to ask you what it's like writing and talking about contemporary politics in these terms, does it make it more difficult to make the case for what you're talking about if you use this particular language, even if you believe it to be absolutely accurate? Mm. Well, it's a really important question. And that's why I mentioned at the beginning that that I do separate out the questions of whether I think it's accurate and whether I think it's a successful strategy, because they're not the same answer necessarily. You know, to people who say it's still not Nazi Germany, I respond Nazi Germany wasn't Nazi Germany to start with either. Hitler had to get there incrementally. He didn't come in straight out of the bat. You know, even the final solution they didn't develop until 1942 or whenever it was. Again, they were like with Trump, they were they 
did trial balloons. They were the politics of incremental advances. They opened Dachau, the first concentration camp. They opened it, uh, declaring that it was for their political enemies, that it was for communists. And it was widely reported. The American press reported that Dachau was opened. It was opened ceremonially. And only retrospectively do we look at that and think, my God, you know, that was going to become the final solution. That was going to become the genocide of European Jews, and of course, many other groups as well, um, including communists, including their political enemies. But at the time, people said, oh, well, it's just their political enemies. So that's objectionable, but oh, well. And then it's a slippery slope, and they see what they can get away with, and they and they increasingly mechanize what they were doing and, and all of the stuff that we know about the final solution. So that took them time to develop. So when people say to me, does it Nazi Germany yet? I say, but why are you trying to give it the chance to become that? <laughs> why, why don't we shut it down? hard, if it even barely resembles the beginning of Hitler's regime, then shut it down hard. And it does strongly resemble the beginning of Hitler's regime. If you say that it resembles the beginning of Hitler's regime, then aren't you implying that it will become that? And I think basically everyone would say that is absolutely absurd. It's tendentious. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that it can become that. And why would you want to create the conditions where that could happen? The thing to me is if you ask, the, and again, there's something I get asked all the time is, is, you know, people say, oh, Trump would, really wouldn't do that. And I say, on what possible basis do you have that assurance? I look at that man's life and I don't see anything in his misbegotten existence that gives me any confidence whatsoever that he has a single moral or principled bone in his body and that he wouldn't do anything given half a chance. And my point is that I'm not prepared to give him a chance. I don't want to find out what he's capable of. Because so far, he's capable of anything. And so uh, do we really want to test that proposition and to say that there, because therefore we end up having to get to genocide before we acknowledge that something has gone wrong. I'm not saying that it will result in genocide. I'm saying why on earth would we open the door to the possibility? When we have so many warning signs in front of us, take the warning signs seriously as warning signs. Don't say that they have to lead to genocide to be warning signs. Say this is a warning sign that he is trying to dismantle democracy. He's going after the Postal Service. He's announced his intention to tamper in the election. He keeps saying that, you know, as they say, he keeps saying the quiet stuff out loud. He tells us what his plans are. Can't you just say these things are bad without saying, well, they're the warning signs for genocide? I, I, I just did. I'm not saying they are the warning signs of genocide. If we describe what fascism looks like in the way that I did historically, then what the Trump administration is doing is fascist, according to those definitions. Every fascism turned out different. Frame it differently. Hitler's was the only fascist movement that ended up in automated, mechanized, full-scale genocide. We do have to bring into that then the question about Mussolini in Ethiopia, where he certainly slaughtered millions. But there, again, there's an argument about how we want to think about that in terms of genocide. But the fact of the matter is, what I'm saying is that we shouldn't have to say that it has to be genocide in order to object to it. Right, like in the universe of possibilities, that's not necessarily where fascism is going to go. But why would like, why are we sitting around finding out? And of course, as you say, it didn't go in that direction everywhere, but everywhere it went, it ended up somewhere bad. You know, it never ended up anywhere good. It ended up with the imprisonment, murder, and disappearance of political opponents. It ended up with these ethnic divisions. It ended up with 
civil war in many cases. You know, it ended up in bad places. So right. the thing about fascism, when I look at it, is I don't see it taking us anywhere good. But genocide is just one of the many panoply of terrible options, but I don't like any of them. Like choose your own adventure <laughs> of, of which horrible future that we will end up in yeah. if we don't, as you say, heed the signs. On that deeply foreboding note for our listeners, Ido, will you take us into the next segment, please? And it's now time for a section that our colleagues at the New Statesman podcast like to call. You ask us. Okay, our first question is actually related because it, it's about the, the norms of American democracy that have yet to be fully tested. An anonymous listener wanted to know, what happens if a candidate for US president or vice president dies after going on the ballot, but before the election is completed or after the election is completed, but before the inauguration? Sarah, we normally let the guest take the first uh, stab at the question. <laughs> right. It's kind of a sinister question. It's very morbid. <laughs> yeah. So the answer is complicated because of the kind of algorithmic um, options there, right? Because we've got like a matrix of two uh, candidates. And then is it before the election, after the election, before the inauguration? And each of those has a slightly different answer. So I'll just try to give the, the shortest and simplest answer, which is that there are two amendments to the Constitution that directly deal with the transfer of power and with the rules governing succession, should any of those types of eventualities play out. So they are, the rules are clearly spelled out. Now, as we've just been saying, you know, there's certainly a question in my mind about whether the current administration will follow those rules, but the rules are clearly laid out. The, the shortest version is that basically my understanding is, and I should stipulate that I'm not a political scientist, so I may have this slightly wrong, but I think it's broadly right. If anything happens to the candidates before the election results are certified, then it's basically up to the party to decide because they're still nominees at that point. And the party, but they don't just decide on the hop. The party also has strict rules in place about how it will decide how to replace a candidate if a candidate dies or is incapacitated. For the most part, of course, if something happened to the presidential candidate, what they would do is move over to the vice presidential candidate. So by and large, what we would see is if anything happened, for example, on the Biden-Harris ticket, if anything happened to Biden, we would expect Harris to take up that position in most of those eventualities. And that includes if it happened after the election, if the Biden-Harris ticket wins and before inauguration, then basically the rules of succession kick in, even though the inauguration hasn't happened. If something happened to both of them, then again, those clear rules of succession state that the next person in line would be the Speaker of the House. And if the Speaker of the House hasn't changed at that point, then my understanding is that it would be Nancy Pelosi. But if there's a new Speaker of the House, then that person would get basically what you would expect to happen is that if something happens to the president, the vice president will step in. If something happens to the vice president, the president or the candidate has the right to appoint the vice president as Biden just appointed Harris. So if something happened to her, Biden would just choose another running mate. There's actually, if you are interested in reading more about this, there is a surprising body of literature gaming out what would happen if the president could not, basically died is the, is the, the short way of putting that, that you can look up if you'd like to to read more. Our next question is, is it surprising that the UAE and the United Arab Emirates and Israel have normalized relations? What does it mean for the region? I will briefly say that I think it's surprising and that it it hasn't happened before. It, it sort of formalizes what was already informal. And I think that we should expect, or we should not be surprised if there are other similar announcements made 
between Israel and other countries in the region leading up to the election. This is seen as a diplomatic win for Trump, even if it, even if what it does is formalize the informal. But Ido, you wrote the piece on it for the New Statesman this week. So how do you see this? Yeah, so on the one hand, it's not surprising at all, because as you say, it formalizes the informal, which is an alliance between Israel and various Arab countries, including the UAE and Saudi Arabia, an alliance of convenience against a rising Iran in the region. So on the one hand, it's not surprising at all. It just formalizes what was already there. But on the other hand, it is very, very surprising because this agreement is not caveated on any progress whatsoever on the Palestinian issue, merely on Israel holding off on the further annexation of the West Bank, holding off on the annexation of the West Bank. And so previous deals between Israel and Arab countries, for example, Israel and Egypt in 1979, had Israel give up various concessions, for instance, in that particular case, it was Israel giving up the Sinai Peninsula that it had occupied during the Six Day War. And in this case, the status quo is the win. So Israel has merely agreed to not annex the Palestinian territories and not so not go further in the occupation that it already has, but nothing changes. The status quo is the win. And that, that's what's really surprising. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Keep them coming in to us at youaskus.co.uk and look up for our announcement next week of our guest on our international Twitter account at Statesman World. As ever, for our final segment, we are going to take a look ahead. Sarah, what in global affairs will you be watching closely next week? My eyes are glued on this, I'm afraid, in a very solipsistic Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. American way glued on what uh, Trump is trying to do to the post office because protecting the integrity of the November election is absolutely paramount. So I'm pretty fixated on that right now. Every American, if you are listening to this podcast and you're an American, you should absolutely be watching the post office and not just because it's where you get your mail from. Ido, what will you be looking out for next week? I'll be looking out for Joe Biden's announcement of the vice president. No, I'm just joking. It's not um, funny, you know. <laughs> uh, I'll be looking at protests in Thailand where there seems to be a growing student movement to challenge the monarchy and um, military rule, which is quite unusual because Thailand is a fairly authoritarian country. We'll see whether the government decides to make any concessions whatsoever. And what will you be looking for? 
This is also very U.S. centric, but I will be looking at the Democratic National Convention, which should be interesting in that it's not actually really a convening. So I'll be watching to see how they handle it. With that, all that remains is for us to thank our guest, Sarah Churchwell, who is a professor at the University of London and the author of a forthcoming piece in the New Statesman, All American Fascism. Sarah, thank you again for taking some time to be with us today. Thanks so much for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. Or your acquaintances. And a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter and follow all our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com backslash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week.